Washed Up Emo sponsors New Belgium Brewing are celebrating their 30th anniversary as a company. To celebrate, they're releasing Wild Ride Amber IPA, a happy tribute to their iconic fat tire. Even better, New Belgium Brewing are giving away bikes and gear all year. Find out more information by visiting newbelgium.com. Do you ever wonder if your favorite band is emo? Tired of being in the same conversation with friends? Not knowing if you're listening to post-hardcore, screamo, emo revival, emo emo violence, even ska. We're We're here here to to help. help. The Emo Council is here staffed and ready for any question you may have. Hey, Emo Council, just wondering if Green Day was considered an emo band. Thanks. Green Day is not an emo band. Okay. From the creators of Washed Up Emo, isthisbandemo.com offers the definitive answer to the only important question of your day. Hey, is this been emo? This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Welcome to the Washed Up Emo Podcast. I am Tom Mullen from WashedUpEmo.com. You're about to listen to part two of a special two-part series on the history of Vagrant Records. In part two, episode 71, we talk with Rich Egan, co-founder of Vagrant Records, about the label currently, the evolution of the independent scene as he sees it, and his work as a manager today. If you missed part one, Rich and I go back through the history of Vagrant, their successes, failures, and transitions as they found their way. In part two, there are a few extra stories thrown in at the end you'll enjoy. Be sure... And stick around for that. This is episode 71, part two of two on the history of Vagrant Records with co-founder Rich Egan on the Wasp Emo podcast. You know, what a crazy time, um, you know, to have all those records and a relationship with one of the biggest labels. And what were some of the thinkings? What were some of the, the thoughts that you guys had sitting there being like, you know, everyone's watching us? Uh, no, that's a good question. Um, and, as far as Interscope goes, we didn't really have any any preconceived notion of how that deal was going to work because we basically, we just did what we were going to do regardless. They were real supportive of, of just letting us do what we were doing because they bought, you know, they bought a non-controlling interest and they said, all right, just keep doing what you're doing. So we never really gave that kind of a second thought, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't like, Oh, we got to please the boss. It was just, we just kept doing what we were doing, but we had more resources to do it. Um, and we never really, we were never really conscious of, of people watching us. Be, I mean, you know, it'd be naive to say that they weren't because, you know, we obviously at the time we were doing a lot of things that were kind of, polarizing controversial i guess um but we we didn't we weren't you know we weren't doing things like um we kind of we kind of did things in a vacuum you know we we just kind of made it up as we went along i think we talked about earlier about you know um the internet advertising and the stuff that we did early on that that we were just i was really lucky to have a lot of good people working there so we just kind of did our own thing you know and a lot of it worked. Um, you know, 
A lot of it didn't. <laughs> a lot of but, but a lot you of it tried luckily it. enough for us did. Yeah. Because we that's did. the thing. It's like you guys had a hand in management. You had a hand in producing. You had a hand in directing the videos. And it, mm-hmm. it, it just it seemed it was like you didn't have um it just seemed like it was more together because you had you were doing more than outsourcing or having other people do it. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think it was we kept a very tight knit group that that and our bands were a tight knit group. Um you know, especially in those that first those first album cycles for everybody. It was kind of a time and a place where it was it was we all you know everybody was you know, for lack of a better term, we're all kind of pulling on the same side of the rope. We all shared a vision of, you know, what the label stood for, what each band stood for, what we stood for musically, ethically, and everything else, you know? Um, and and I I got that, you know, early on, at least for me, that was always kind of my utopia. It was like, man, if we could be like Discord, like, you know, we weren't charging $5 for shows and $8 for CDs or anything like that, but it was just kind of, as a kid growing up buying Discord records, it was always like, wow, they're all in it together. You know? Mm-hmm. Whether it was Shutter to Think or Jawbox or Fugazi or whatever, it was all like they shared a vision. And, and we always, especially early on, we were signing bands who had like-minded visions as we did and, and, and were, you know, that we, that we really liked as people. Um, so we, we were. We were a very tight-knit family. Um, you know, whether it was our art director, Joby Ford at the time, we had a certain aesthetic, you know, everything kind of looked put together very well. And, you know, the videos that my sister directed and my sister and her husband were all, you know, on point with what the band wanted to convey. And so we just kind of all, you know, we were always in lockstep. Um, it was a, it was a really, it was a great time because there wasn't a whole lot of, um, there wasn't a whole lot of kind of, Descent or unhealthy competition or jealousy you, or anything like that. You were all you know going for the same goal. Yeah, we were all going for the same goal because nobody expected anything <laughs> of us or you know of 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 the scene or anything. And so we were just like, we're just going to do what we want to do. And then the whole thing kind of erupted, you know, fortuitously around us, and we were part of it. You know, I'm certainly not saying we we spearheaded it, but it was a it was a great thing to be a part of, you know? Um, and with the emergence of the internet and everything else was coming on and we just, we didn't have any rules to play by. And none of us grew up in the music industry, so we didn't know there were any rules. Yeah. You know? So that made it really, really fun. Um, and the relationships were great, you know, whether it was with other labels or, and distributors or other bands who weren't on the label. I mean, it was just a, it was a really, really healthy good time for like a few years there where the scene was, I just think at its, you know, at its most fun and it's most pure. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we, we, we talked about this a little bit prior, but I think it's worth bringing up now. Cause it, you know, Oh seven, Oh six, Oh eight, it's sort of, uh, it turned a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. what were your sort of thoughts on that? And then, you know, kind of pressure to, stay with what was going on, but still do what you wanted to do and sign the bands that you wanted. Hmm. Um, yeah, right around then, I think 
it was it was a combination of things. It was the music that we were putting out, um, and we may have talked about this before. I may be repeating myself, but the music that we were putting out suddenly started to, or, or at least bands that were influenced by the bands that we were releasing, you know, in from 2000 to 2005 or 2004, say, um, you know, the second and third and fourth generation of those bands just weren't really inspiring to us as a label and to, you know, to, I, just, I think they weren't breaking any new ground. And, you know, where I saw it, where I saw that sound going, we'd already kind of covered that ground. Yeah. Um, and there wasn't any need in repeating that. I never wanted to be that label that you, that every band sounds the same when you buy the record. That was like my biggest fear. We used to call it, um, we used to call it indie, indie label disease. It's like you think <laughs> anything you put out because it has your logo on it is going to sell and it's all going to sound the same. That like terrified me. Um, so we, I can't say it was a conscious effort to like, oh, we got to keep up. You know, we got to hit sales goals. But, you know, the music was changing. Um, there was more of a hardcore element brought into it, which, which I liked because we were a punk rock label to begin with, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so when we first started signing harder bands, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a concerted effort to say, okay, well, you know, we got to keep up with what the kids are doing. It was like, I thought Modern Ash has made an amazing record, uh, their first album. And, and I knew that they were looking for, or that they were talking to labels. And so we signed them. And, um, I thought the bled was incredible. The son of bled mm-hmm. and, uh, and then sense of fail was, I got to know buddy really well and, um, started managing them and they were kind of stuck in this kind of major label limbo kind of thing. Um, with the drive through deal and, and interscope. And because of our relationship with interscope, we were able to kind of help us facilitate getting out of there. And then, so we had sense of fail then. So suddenly we had this kind of, and we also had a manual as well. We had this group of bands who were, you know, who grew up on our music or who were, you know, part of the scene, not maybe the, not, you know, the get up kids saves the day dashboard scene, but we definitely came up in that scene or were influenced by it. But now they were taking hardcore elements and adding it. And, you know, I like, I really liked all those bands, but we had our own, now we had, you know, four or five of those kind of bands. Mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, you had, you know, you had our, our stalwarts, our, our kind of, you know, our lack of a better word, our stars of the label. The, the, you know, you had Dashboard, we had the Get Up Kids. Says they had, I think, had gone to DreamWorks and come back at that point. So we had our old school, you know, staples. But then we also had um, the Lemonheads. We had Paul Westerberg. And we had Rockets from the Crypt. And we had Face to Face. You know, and so it was, we had these three factions mm-hmm. of, um, we had a lot of bands on the label at the time and it did seem like it got, you know, just being blunt. It wasn't as much fun anymore because it was, you had different generations of bands. You had different expectations that the bands had because, you know, they see dashboard sell a million records and all of a sudden they, where's my million records kind of thing, you know? And, and three different scenes. It, yeah. Three completely different scenes. Different people, you know, different it, different clothing, <laughs> everything. different everything, different different instruments, different everything. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and we found the hold steady too. So it was like 
you know, it was, we were going all kinds of different directions, not with any grand, like, okay, well maybe this is going to be the next hot thing. It was just like, let's just keep signing bands we like. Well, we looked up and we had a lot of bands all of a sudden, you know, and I think at a certain point it became, um, just bigger. It just became a big machine. And that was never really the intent was to make it a, a big, it was, the intent was to be a successful machine to put out great music, but I never wanted it to be a big operation, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, I think we got a little bloated for lack of a better term. I think we, we, you know, I think we missed on some records that we should have gotten, that we should have gotten to break through. Um, maybe because we were so big or we're so big, that's relative, but, maybe because there were so many different um, moving parts, you know, and there were so many bands. So that's, if I had any regrets, which I don't really, I wouldn't call them regrets, but if I could say I would have done a couple things differently, we probably would have had a little bit, we would have maybe tempered our growth a little bit. It just exploded, you know? Yeah. And then it made it, it made it not as fun as when we first started to, when the label was first really starting to go. Which I think is hard. I think labels go those ebb and flows of you've got three big bands and then two of them go away and one's still there and then they're fading and then you got another big one that comes and it's a different genre and you sort of have to you know, play with all that. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that was the... I mean, you guys had such a high and then you know the Hold Steady was a high too. Um, yeah, that, the Hold Steady ushered in kind of a whole new era for us. Definitely. Which was interesting. You know, it was um, it was interesting because between you know the dashboard, get up, kids, save the day, offline trio years, there was you know the census fail from on to ashes, the blood years, and then in '06 that was the last band that I personally signed the label was the Hold Steady, and and um, and then it was like, oh wait a second, Vagrant's got the Hold. I mean, nobody expected us to sign the Hold Steady. Yeah, but it was uh and, and, you know, to John's credit, once I, after that, I, management kind of started taking up more of my time, well, all of my time. And, and it really, John and Dan really reshaped the label just by the, you know, their tastes and, and the bands that they were signing. And, you know, you fast forward a few years and it's Edward Sharp, it's, you know, Black Road Motorcycle Club, it's 1975 and Murder by Death. You know, I think they, yeah. Murder by Death was one of my favorite bands on label. I thought they were amazing, um, and they still are. But it just—it definitely—it was. A, I think it was a good thing for the label to kind of say, "Okay, we're." I think it was actually, if anything, it was more true to our beginnings. It was like we're going to sign bands that we love, you know? Yeah. And did you um, did you feel good about that kind of having management take up the time and sort of letting John and Dan, John was the other um, owner and then Dan is the GM um, for people yeah. to don't know, but that's sort of the, you kind of, you were fine with not giving it up, but sort of letting it go. Um, yeah, I didn't have, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of choice because the management company had really started to, to take off and, and we were growing kind of like early vagrant was. I mean, uh, I may, I was managing things from, you know, Dashboard to the Wallflowers to Augustana Peter Jennings to Augustana to you know I've had face to face for twenty years <laughs> um, and and so it was it was it was a it was a 
just a big operation. The management became full time, and that's that's not a part time job. You know, it's a twenty four seven thing. And really, the label was in great hands. I mean, I had I was very lucky to have very good people. I mean, Dan's been there, man, at least fifteen years. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, John and I are partners twenty years. Um, and they did a great job. I mean, they did they've done an incredible job of the label, keeping it relevant, keep challenging listeners, keep, you know, finding stuff that's great. And, and yeah, I, I was, I was, um, I was extremely proud to be, it was, it was emotionally hard because, you know, I literally had to move out of the building. I moved across town to another management, co- to a, another, another management co- a building. Um, so yeah, it was kind of hard not to be a ground zero, but you know, those guys knew what they were doing. Yeah. Two funny things I, I I find now with the changeover and the label, and this is just me finding it funny and maybe no one else does, but it's really hard to find an emo band on the site. You really got to search. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't really stoked. <laughs> it's that. like super yeah. hard. <laughs> it, well, it was, I'll tell you what I was bummed about. And it was that, it looked for a time there and, and, you know, we, we kind of get our differences over this, but it looked like a time like we were trying to, they were trying to bury our past or we were trying to bury our past. And I'm like that I'll fly that flag all day long. You know, those bands made our label, you know, exactly. Um, there's a reason like, that there's it, money for hold steady. It's because of exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that they, they may have overthought that one a little bit and, and, I wasn't stoked on the changing of the logo and things like that, but you know, it was, it was John ship to run. And at that point, and, and he did the best he, he you know, he did what he thought was best. The it only was, other funny you know, one was the, was the press release going to BMG. Um, there was no mention of any emo <laughs> bands. And I, I like, I, I I was like laughing so hard in my office, like I just was like, "Oh my god, guys! Like, just put fucking get up, kids! Just put hot, ro- like, put one little nugget in there for me." But nope. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Dashboard only sold four million records. You'd think that might be mentioned. <laughs> Rocket from the Crypt, one of like I yeah. mean, John Reese's seminal musician, uh, should be you know in the Rock Hall of Awesome. It's just one of those like I don't know. I just it was a very funny day for me. Yeah, Paul Westerberg. I mean, hello. <laughs> I haven't heard of him. I, I should listen to him on Spotify. Yeah, exactly. You should look him up. <laughs> yeah, that was kind of funny. They, they, we were joking about it because the the BMG thing was it really came out of left field. Um, and you know, it was a uh, and we were choking it that I should do all the all. Sean said I should have all the quotes because I I literally wasn't you know involved in the last few years of the label. And John was like, "Yeah, we should just we should just have all quotes from you in there about about the transition over to VMG because I don't know those people. I don't know from Adam, but John, uh, you know, John orchestrated the deal and and uh, and God bless him for it. I mean, it's, it, I think it'll be a great thing and it's a great thing for him and and hopefully for the band as well. But yeah, it was it was kind of uh, it was kind of funny. It was a little bit of revisionist history in the press release." I did. I did a double take. I mean, I was like, "This is like people are going to look at this, you know, hundred years later and be like, no, there wasn't any bands on Vagrant prior to this.' <laughs> like one of those things that just get lost in the annals of history." <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny because I I think even with all the success of Edward Sharp and and nineteen seventy five and all the great stuff they put out, I still think people are going to refer to us as emo Taff, you know, forever. <laughs> 
I, I just think they'll they'll always you know they'll always think of the the early two thousands. Yeah, and so Equal Vision was the same thing. It's a hardcore label. They could put out a mm-hmm. hundred you know uh, yeah, indie rock records. And, I'm sorry, yeah. Bane Bane was on Equal Vision. <laughs> Exactly. That's, what, that's what exactly. It is. And there's nothing and, wrong. Yeah. And you know what? I'm I'm like exceptionally proud of the records we put out. It's like it's it was it was the most it was like I don't know, it was the most satisfying time of my career in, in the music business in twenty years was was those first few records when the label really started to like identify itself, you know. Yeah. It was it was, it was just it was a great time. And I think for better or worse we're always gonna be known for that. You know, and it's interesting now, man, it's, it's fascinating to me to see the evolution of and how that's come back around, especially in the last couple of years. And I think people are starting to appreciate exactly kind of the, the music that came out back then, not just on Vagrant, but, you know, there was a ton of great music coming out back then. And to see the whole thing come full circle where they've got, I'm sure you know it, but they've got like, emo nights like once a week at these clubs and they do a thousand people and they're just spinning records from the early 2000s yeah and, no in la it's, it's and nuts. yeah the that one in la actually um uh reached out to me and asked grandpa me um to dj outside with old records even though i said i have all the new shit i got all this stuff you're playing <laughs> trust me i know what to do what was crazy is around 2010 i started hearing about these bands that were copying late 90s and it kind of made me happy because throughout that moment there was you know it was just counting swoops and alt press and yeah and it was now to kind of feel like oh wow they're actually looking back and 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 learning about you know if it's polyvinyl records or they're even diving into you know barsook or whatever it was they were mm-hmm. the bands had this infinite thing called the internet to go and look and listen to everything um, and s- w- when you started hearing, started hearing about that, was that something that kind of got you excited and Ben, that it kind of jumped over a little genre that kids were getting excited about again, about something that you would thought would have was forgotten. Yeah. You know, and, and mainly because the bands deserve it because they made really good music back then. Mm-hmm. And it was really coming from a pure place. You know, it was before everything kind of morphed into this weird, like, okay, you look like Motley Crue, you are calling yourself an emo band, and, you know, you have, you know, songs that are, lyrics that are barely, you know, barely, you can't understand a word you're saying. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't, to me, it just sounded like, you know, ass metal later on, and, or as you called it, swoop haircuts. It was, it was, I mean, I didn't, and no disrespect, I don't really know the band, but the bands, the, the, um, what is it? Burning Brides? Is that a band? Is that, the band? Is that, is you that can it? Edit this, Black Veil Brides. You can edit this part. Black Veil Brides, okay. Make me sound intelligent. Uh, <laughs> I don't see the, I don't see the connection between Hot Rod Circuit and Black Veil Brides. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so to see that, that, that got under my skin for a while where it was like, that's not what we did. You know, like, hey, you know, I know what that is. That's you guys wear a bunch of makeup and have these really fancy haircuts and you all do the warp tour and you all sound the same. I'm like, no, that's not what we did. Um, but yeah, that hurt me a bit. But now to see bands, you know, harken back to 
sounding like get, the Get Up Kids. It sounded like Super Chunk, you know? Um, sounding like the Promise Ring, I mean, yeah, that's a hell of an influence. I mean, yeah. I think they're one of the most critted, like, I, I am, I love that band. Um, you know, Braid, Captain Jazz, like all of those bands. I, I, if if band, if kids today are listening to that and going, hey, this is really good, we should try this, then we did something right, you know, collectively. Not we, Vagrant, but we who were kind of part of the scene at the time. Yeah, and, and, it, and, and it lasted. It, 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 it jumped it kind of it was it was incubating you know i was angry about it you were angry about it and then it kind of incubated and one you know they started finding out about it that they being kids younger and it was really great that they took something from it and when i told the guys from top shelf when i first met them i said you remind me of you know 1998 like you would have fit in right next to us like it would have been Vagrant, top shelf, whatever, you know, right next to us. And um, it was, you know, you could see that they were coming from this place of DIY. And I'm not saying you have to, but you sort of need to understand that because of that. You're right. There is no connection between Hot Rod Circuit and Black Veil Brides. There just isn't. Um, I will fight anybody. I'll have a debate till the end of time. Um, but the uh, it was, I think it was a really beautiful thing to kind of see it come back and, um, the problem is, is the last couple of years, it's now nostalgia about 2005, which is happening again, <laughs> which right. meaning that, you know, there's a lot more emo nights. There's a lot more kids in their mid twenties that are grew up in it, that went to skate and surf or bamboozle. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it all comes back around and I'm just happy that it got remembered again. You know, mineral got to do another tour. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, I am too. I, I think it's, I think basically it speaks to quality of music. You know, because mm-hmm. it was good music and it was honest music and there wasn't any, okay, if we have the right haircut and we write, wear the right things and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, we're on the right label, we'll be big. It was, this is what we do. I mean, I can't tell you the, the amount of bands when we, that we signed early on who were like, you've heard of us? You want to put out our records? You know what really? I mean? That, that, that was, that was amazing to me. I mean, and I can tell you the first time I talked to Chris about Dashboard. I can tell you the first time I talked to Chris Connolly. I can tell you the first time I talked to Matt Skiba. I can tell you the first time I talked to Matt Pryor. Um, first time I talked to Paul Westerberg, I almost had a heart attack. <laughs> uh, but I can, like, literally the the shock or kind of the, the like, really, you know who we are? And I, meanwhile, I'm thinking, you know, we're this piddly little label. I'm thinking, you know who we are? Yeah. So it was cool because we were all underdogs, you know? And it was, um, it was just, it was a great time. And, and there were, there were good people running good record labels and putting out good music. I mean, whether it was Dirk at Doghouse or Steve at EVR, I mean, those are like, those are quality guys who believe in what they do, you know? Yeah. And, um, and I just, I don't know. I admired those guys and, and I respected them and, and, we even though we ended up with the Get Up Kids and Saves the Day, it was like we were professionals and we could be friends. I mean, I talked to Dirk last week. You know, he's it's just it's a it's a good I don't know it's a good feeling to see that still be in place. And the bands you know, would tour together. Like, oh God, it was that's like all we did. That, that that that's how you fucking survived. It was like <laughs> yep, it was that like was, that was our bread and butter, man. <laughs> I mean, if if I mean, but if you weren't friends with Dirk, you know that. That that tour might have not have happened, or those other things. You know, yep. it was 
Um, you know, it wasn't just these super, you know, live nation package tours, you know, warp tour stuff. It was, um, more yeah. the grassroots. Um, yeah, it's funny cause they, they tell us, you know, I mean, the vagrant America tour was kind of ground zero for that. Oh my God. You know, like, what is this? This wasn't, that but was insane. <laughs> What's that? It was insane. <laughs> it, it was, it was absolutely insane. I'm not going to lie to you. It was, it was crazy. Um, and, and I think we touched on this before, but we were also going through a lawsuit at the same time. Mm-hmm. So it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. We had 49 sold out shows all over America. And meanwhile, we couldn't rub two nickels together because we were in the middle of a lawsuit. You know, and the Hey Mercedes rec room was getting pushed and wow. it was just a mess. But it was, it was amazing. And, but we had done, the funny thing is we had done the year before we did it. We just didn't call it the Vagrant America tour. Um, and it was sponsored by Napster and, and the, and, but all the time in between, we did many, what you could call Vega America tours. I remember it was Alpine trio dashboard, no motive and hammer, uh, maybe the anniversary. That was a tour. Like we would just see who was available and everybody wanted to tour together. So you'd go from one tour, you know, one four band vagrant tour to another. Um, and that was great. And then we had our kind of, you know, our friends' bands who would be on the tours, whether it was brand new, you know, or Newfound Glory, or God, there were so many bands that would that would join us. And, and then, then we would find bands during those tours, because that's how I found Monine. Oh, I mean, really? Actually, no, I found, yeah, Monine I found totally by a demo. That was one of the very few I, I put it in. I was, I was like, what is this? It was amazing. I heard that song, uh, Are You Really Happy With Who We Are Right Now? And I, uh, and I was like, I got to find out who this band is. And so, but that's how we, they were opening for one of our bands in Canada. And I went and saw them. I was like, I got to sign you. So it was, um, that's how we would find them. I mean, Emmanuel was opening up for somebody in some rural part of Pennsylvania. And I saw the show and I was like, that sounds like a vagrant band to me. So it was, you know, it, it was great because touring was our lifeblood. And I think that comes from management, you know I mean? It's what we do. Labels nowadays, they're like, you know, touring is, unless they have a part of touring. Um, oh, exactly. I mean, management, that. no, that, I mean, that's how you get them out there. That's the, I, I mean, I always, I always say in meetings, I'm like, don't forget the flyover states. There's this giant, oh, there's this giant country that everyone, you know, if it's not down on your block at your bodega or down the street in Venice, it's not, it doesn't exist. And, I've lived in those small ass towns and uh I it's 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 harder and harder and when you play mobile and 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 outside of Atlanta or something like it means a lot. Oh yeah. I, I mean just you know a great example is Canada. Those kids are so enthusiastic about music because nobody goes there. You know so when you do a cross Canadian tour if you're playing they lose their minds and Thunder Bay and, you know, places like that, they're packed because nobody goes there. And that's how you build loyalty. And that's how you build, you know, if 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 the Get Up Kids came through and did 300 people, you know, then then that opens the door for you know, Hot Rod and the Anniversary to come down 150 people where they would have done zero people a month before, you know? Yeah. And that's how we built it because our bands would come through and they'd talk about their other bands and, and they'd be wearing our shirts and they'd be, you know, we'd be making sure that they left with, with a mail order card or whatever it was at the time. And, and it was just, 
everybody pitched in. Our band shared buses all the time. You know, it wasn't, there were no ego battles, especially early on. There was none of that. It was like, we're all in this together. And most of that was, was forged on the road. It just so happened to kind of mushroom cloud at the, at the Vagrant Tour because we had this idea to do this tour and it sold out so quick we just kept adding dates, you know? And that, <laughs> like you kept having to change the poster. Yeah, we had we literally had to change the poster several times. It was going to be save the day and dashboard and then kind of a rotating cast of openers, but then, okay, we're in Chicago. Well, how do you do Chicago without having Alpine Trio on all four nights? And then the get-up kids were like, yeah, we'll come down. That's close enough. We'll headline those nights. So, I mean, we did... We did almost 5,000 people in Chicago That's over so four nights. And crazy. It was, I mean, it was nuts. It was it was just a crazy, crazy time. And, you know, it comes to L.A. and we do three nights at the House of Blues and face-to-face is like, we'll play one of those nights. I mean, they could do <laughs> six nights at the House of Blues on their own. On their own, you know? yeah. Yeah. And so there, it was just a great, I don't know, man. It, it, it's hard to, it's not one of those things you could ever replicate, but. I would never trade it for a million years. It was, just, it was stressful, and it was it was it was a bloodbath monetarily for us. But I would never trade it. Have you ever thought about? I mean, just I don't know if it's like if it's like a a, a book or some sort of documentation of that that year or something or that year and a half. Have you thought about something like that? Just to sort of because I think that'd be a nice piece of of nostalgia to. Uh, look back on for a lot of people. You know what we did? We actually filmed the whole Vagrant tour Mm -hmm. and behind the scenes and the hotel rooms and the bus rides and everything. Um, It's documented somewhere. Unfortunately, our documentarian got a little too happy with the partying during the tour. So a lot of it is filmed upside down and backwards and (laughs) and inappropriate stuff. We'd, We'd have to do a lot of fixing to it, but we've, We've talked about it. What about a book? Documentary. Um, I don't know. I think the book, I think Andy Greenwald kind of covered it in his book pretty well. Um, you know, Andy did a good job of kind of capturing. Especially, I, yeah. I to, the only thing about know, Andy is to, that he wasn't, he kind of came from an outside perspective mm-hmm. versus the inside. Mm-hmm. And that would be the one part that I would you know, you coming from a lover of discord and punk rock and putting out stuff on your own, like that sort of versus I'm a writer and I'm following this guy. And he, I mean, yes, the book is, there's some great points. And I just think there's something about when you're in it to start, there's a different uh, feel to it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't rule it out. You know, if, if, if I could have a ghostwriter who I could just just tell stories to and he could run down, we might get a book out of it. <laughs> <laughs> if I write, if I start writing something, I'll drift off into you know watching ESPN.com or something. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a funny chapter. <laughs> um, I think yeah. t- I think this is a good. I mean, there's a lot of obviously stuff with Vagrant, and you know, I'm sure people will um, reach out and want to hear more. But I want to get into the sort of the management part and your move to Nashville, and you know, sort of your sort of about face almost of having, you know, you still have face to face, but you know, it's Brantley Gilbert, it's Augustana, it's Mac Miller, um, it, you know, definitely di- diversified, and that must have. You know, that wasn't just a bunch of punk rock kids. You're dealing with, you know, Nashville, which is um, a world until itself. 
the least punk rock place you can think of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, at least it was when I moved here. It was crazy. Um, yeah, it was, uh, you know, it's, it's weird because <clears throat> when I moved here, I strictly did it because of quality of life. And I was, I was doing management full time and John and Dan were running vagrant. Um, you know, I'm still a silent partner. I still owned half of the label, but I wasn't doing anything with labels. So there's no reason for me to be there for that. And my management clients live all over the country. And I was born and raised in LA and I just did not like what it became. So I moved to Nashville with no plans of getting into country music. I, you know, I mean, my country music kind of began and ended with Johnny Cash and, you know, Hank Williams and Waylon. Merle Haggard and, and Waylon, which I was blessed to put out a Waylon record with Vagrant, which was still another highlight. Mm-hmm. Sold about three copies, but it was, <laughs> I couldn't have been happier. Um, <laughs> you know, it was like those kind of things, putting out a Lemonheads record, putting out a uh, Westford record, putting out Rockin' from the Crypt, and putting out Waylon. Kind of, and I think all four of those together didn't sell the first week that dashboards were sold, but it didn't matter. It was those things were like, wow, we're actually something. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> we're, we're, somebody takes us seriously. Um, but moving to Nashville, yeah, I just, uh, you know, I'm, uh, my, like I said, I'm, I'm a Johnny Cash aficionado, and, um, and, the, and, you know, the Sun Years with, with Jerry Lee and Elvis and, and Carl Perkins and all that. I, I'm obsessed with that and, and 50s music, but you know, whatever country was or is, I, it was foreign to me, you know, it might as well have been, you know, polka music. I had no idea. And, um, but this, this kid Brantley, I, I saw play a bar and I, I may have told you this, but it was like seeing dashboard for the first time. Wow. He was playing everybody and nobody wanted to give him a record deal in Nashville. He was, he was out touring. Nashville's very different because it's it's so radio based. If you're not on the radio, you don't exist. Well, here was a kid who was out doing it just like the punk rock bands. He was playing your Poughkeepsie's. He was playing these hole in the wall places that you've never heard of, playing college towns and doing first two hundred kids and you come back six weeks later and you're before hundred and then eight hundred. And he did it completely under everybody's noses. He had sold a hundred thousand records. Wow. On an indie. And there are no indies really in, in Nashville, you know? And, um, and I tried to sign him when I was living in LA, I tried to give him a country imprint because I just think he's a, he is a truly incredible talent as a songwriter and an, and an artist. And, um, and I stayed in touch with him for a couple of years after the favorite label thing didn't work out. The country imprint didn't work out. Um, and uh, when I moved to Nashville, I just happened to give him a call, and he needed a manager, so we hooked up. And the next thing we know, you know, Jason Aldean covers two of the songs that sell six million records, and that opens the door for Brantley at Radio, and he's going on his fifth number one single now, and wow. million records, and sold out arenas. And I'm in the country music business, so <laughs> it was it was it was really lighting in a bottle there, but. Again, it kind of goes back to the same thing with Vagrant. It was like Brantley and I shared a very similar view of how to do it. It's like you just do it. You don't wait for anybody's permission. You know, you don't, if you believe in what you're doing, you don't ask anybody else's opinion. 
you know, you, you, you listen, but then you go with your gut. And, um, and he got that immediately. And I, I think I might've told you this, but the first time I sat down with him, did I tell you this? No. I sat down with him in this club in, um, Maysville, Georgia. And, um, I said, you know, you probably don't know who I am or, or, or what I do. And he's like, of course I do. The Ashford Confessional Unplugged was, got me through my freshman year of college. And I'm thinking, <laughs> this kid from Jefferson, Georgia, population 1,400. Saw a fucking dashboard. Country singer is quoting dashboard lyrics to me. He's like, oh, yeah, Remember to Breathe? That's my favorite song. I'm like, where am I? <laughs> wow. So to, at that point, it was like, wow, this is really weird. Um and I found moving here and with, with Chris moving here as well. And Dan from Augustana lives here and Trevor from face to face lives here. Oh, Jeff I didn't know that. Glory lives here. Yeah. The guys from further scenes forever live here. It's like, like there's a bunch of kids who grew up on our music. And when Chris moved to town, I had a request from, you know, literally from superstars to write with him who were like, oh, I grew up on him. I mean, his first show, we just, we booked him a couple weeks notice when he moved to town to play the cannery. It's a thousand capacity room. And we get an email from Taylor Swift and she wants to know if she can come to the show. So Taylor's standing on the side of the stage singing every word. And, <laughs> Was Chris and like, oh, like, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, he's like, what is going on? Um, you know, and Haley from Paramore lives here. And mm-hmm. it's a, it's a, it's a really cool scene. And there's, I know this sounds ridiculous, but it there is something punk rock about Nashville and that everybody's really supportive of each other. You know, there's a million disparities, but there's also it's about the music and people root for each other. They literally they they kinda hope well for the other guy. You know? Mm-hmm. So it's it's I I, I I identify with that immediately. And um you know, the rest of and then and I still have literally the same clients I had then. I still have Dashboard. I still have got Face Face, uh, Augustana, all the same clients I had in LA. But, you know, we added hip hop, we added indie rock bands, with, and then we've got a humongous country client. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting to say the least. I would not have guessed it if you had told me this 10 years ago. Yeah. I'm living here doing this. So I what? kind of stick out at the meetings and my Converse and my uh, my hoodies, but <laughs> oh, so but, so okay. you didn't you you didn't assimilate to country. I did uh, not outfits. assimilate. I stick out like a sore thumb, Tom. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm that guy. <laughs> what do you what what? I mean, that's such a great sort of. I mean, you can see the lineage between them and how they all work together, and how there's people with you throughout this time, but then there's new people that understood that aesthetic. I really love that continuation of it. What's next? What do you? What what's kind of something on your your wish list that you know is on uh, a list that you're you know that oh in 2016 I want to do this. Um, is there anything? That's a great question. Yeah, there is. You know, I'd like to. Um, man. There, uh, there's some things that, that we're working on that uh, aren't necessarily nostalgic because I, it's weird. In my in my younger days, I, Bob Dylan had a great quote that said, "Nostalgia is death." And, <laughs> and I and I always kind of like identify with that. I said, "Yeah, it's always about the next thing." But when you get to a certain age, you look back and you go, "You know what? 
nostalgia is pretty damn cool as long as you don't live in it. You know, mm-hmm. it's nice. To, it's a great place to visit, but you don't want to live there. Um, so, you know, what we're doing is 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 kind of seeing if we can do a hybrid of, of both. Um, we're, you know, there's talk about starting another label. Oh, great. Um, yeah, I mean, Trevor, Trevor from Face to Face and I have a vinyl label called Folsom that um, we put out a rise against uh, uh, seven inch uh, split with face to face. And we put out Johnny two bags and social distortion and, uh, and a couple others, but we're just a vinyl only label and we're going to open a store um, that kind of throws back to kind of when I was a kid, when you go wait in line to buy tickets and you didn't have to pay a $45 service charge <laughs> for a $15 ticket. It's a $50 service so, charge. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. It keeps going up. <laughs> So we're going to open up, uh, it's not necessarily a record store, but we're, we're opening up a, what we like to call a cool shit store where we just sell what we like, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to do that. And then we got, we got a couple of tours that are big that we're going to be, that we're putting together. We're not quite ready to announce them yet, but they're coming and, um, you know, possibly a, possibly a movie or a film documentary. Great. So it's, uh, there's some, there's some really cool things that are, that are coming down the pike and, and just the ease and the barrier to access or the, the barrier to entry is, is lowered. So it's like, there's incredible people moving here from LA and New York, Chicago. I've had five friends move to Nashville already uh, last year, five friends. Well, yeah. It's, it's crazy. I mean, it's an accident. You know, what, what would be the, the opposite of an exodus, an influx? Yeah. There's an influx of, uh, of people coming here because, it's, frankly, it's a great place to live. And there's really great people, and there's a supportive art scene, and they appreciate music. You know, whether you make guitars or you play guitars, it's like they appreciate it as an art and a business. And they're real supportive. Um, you know, we're, we're opening up a – talk about opening up a bar where we can have – you know, our friends play and just have a cool place for our friends to go, you know, cause they all live here now. So, and you might as well uh, all hang out. Exactly. And if we do, it's crazy. I mean, I'm probably the least of it cause I'm the grand old man with four kids, but, <laughs> but you know, I'll, I'll go over to Krava's house and the further guys will be there. Chad will be there. Trevor's there all the time. You know, he and Dan from Augustana ride together, Brantley and Dan ride together. I mean, it's, it's a really, it's a really cool place, you know? And when the bands come to town, you know, prior was through, he was playing the Americana festival, I believe. Um, you know, it's great to see those guys, you know, because now Nashville's a stop. We used to skip Nashville back in the day. It's like, Oh, nobody wants to hear our stuff there. Yeah. But now, you know, now there's a great thriving indie rock kind of scene here and it does numbers and there's a hip hop scene. You know, I mean, I went to Chance the Rapper. He sold out a month in advance. Wow! You know, Mac does three thousand tickets here. It's it's a whole new ball game because it's it's Vanderbilt and it's Belmont. I mean, those are that's the audience right there. You know, but but you have this opportunity where you know the artists aren't getting pushed out of whatever practice space they're in, or they're not living with six different people. That you can actually make a, you you can make it the ends meet. Yes, it's still expensive. It's a city, but the people that I've spoken to that have moved there, it's like, I have this for this amount of money. And <laughs> it's like, <laughs> Yo, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. 
for a uh, for a you know a studio apartment in New York, you can get thirteen acres here. <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty cool. As I sit and in my studio got their apartment, own recording studio. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it's a very very cool thing, you know. And there's 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 incredible music coming out of here. I mean, I still think this Jason Isbell record from 2013 is the best record I've heard in four or five years. Um, you know, it's just it's there's a lot of really really good stuff. That that isn't necessarily punk rock or indie rock, but it has the same aesthetic, and and I just love it. It comes through in the music. I mean, I can recommend one record. It's that it's that southeastern record by Jason Isbell. It's like it represents everything that that I love about you know indie rock, but it's not. It's it's all country. Mm-hmm. That's cool. So it's a, yeah, it's a really good place. It's a very very good place. They do look at you. You you do run uh, you know across the old boy network once in a while at a dinner or they they're name checking people you have no idea who they're talking about and then it gets to me and then they ask me who who, uh, who made me want to be in this business and I say Joe Strummer and they look at me like I'm sorry was he in Merle Haggard's band I don't know who's he did you play Dolly Parton like it's uh. Nobody really knows their punk rock history here, but that's fine. I can educate them one one person at a time. <laughs> I love that. Um, just finishing up, I would love uh, uh, three questions that I think would be kind of fun way to end it. Was there a band that you missed signing or missed working with that, if you can say, you don't have to if you don't want to, but is there a band that you were like, I would have loved to work with, either at Vagrant or even now? Um, yes. Let's see. There's several. Um, <laughs> there's several. I, you know, again, no regrets, and they all went on to do great things. Some of them didn't, and, and you look back and you go, I could have done great things for that band. You know, that's probably ego talking, but, you know, it's, it's also part belief in just how great the bands were. Um, bands that I would have liked, brand new. Mm-hmm. I tried my damnedest to, uh, to the point of stupidity. Um, tried to sign brand new when they signed DreamWorks. Um, I love that band. I thought Dave Shen To Do was one of the best records in that decade. Um, who else? Dropkick Murphys. We had a deal all but done when they were leaving at the TAF and at the last second it fell apart. But I love to have worked with Dropkick. Remain a huge fan. Um, who else? Those two popped to mind immediately. Yeah. Um, those are not you know, those aren't bad <laughs> no no I love both those bands and I've remained fans still and I and I, and, and friends I mean they're, they're just they're they're just great bands they're just great artists um, and there's 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 bands also that we had that we screwed up you mm-hmm. know for lack of better terms or that just for whatever, maybe we didn't screw up. Maybe it being a little harsh because I know that we threw everything into it, but it just didn't work. But, Timing, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think I think Hot Rod Circuit's first record was a masterpiece, and I could not understand why that didn't connect like the rest of them did at that time. Um, you know, the first record we put out by a band called Boxer, which was, you know, it was in the, the kind of the lifetime vein mm-hmm. and I almost didn't sign Save the Day because I was like well we have Boxer why do we need Save the Day because I was only familiar with Can't Slow Down at that point ah. and, and and I liked I liked Can't Slow Down but it was you know they were doing something very similar to Boxer 
and the boxer felt boxer broke up two weeks after they got together. Um, after we released the record, um, you know, I think we could have done. I, I wish we could have gotten no motive to break through mm-hmm. more than more than they did. Um, other bands that I wish I had signed that I didn't. Uh, I always would have liked to put out the uh, My Bloody Valentine follow up. That would have been amazing <laughs> if we could have put out a, that record. Um, you know, as long as we're reaching for the stars, that would have been great. Um, but other than that, no. I mean, I think it was weird. I got to work with a lot of my heroes. Um, and it was, uh, oh, definitely. It was, it was, it was a, it was a really cool time. We, we had one, one brief shot at putting on a Morrissey record. It would have been great, but then he kind of went Morrissey on us and he wanted a gazillion dollars. I'm like, I don't think he got the memo <laughs> <laughs> of who we are. So, uh, yeah, that would have been great. Cause I'm a, I'm a big Smiths fan. But yeah, not a lot of regrets, but brand new and, and, and dropkick or two that got away for sure. Yeah. Is there one, if you could pick one favorite record from the Vagrant catalog? Oh man, you know what my answer's going to be. It's like picking your favorite kid. I know. That's um, why I'm asking it. Yeah. It's a, uh, wow, the one favorite record. Or even Vagrant just catalog. Impact or, you know, it's like if someone, if someone asked me about EVR, you know, I have one that I always mention first. That 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 kind of thing, right? I, I you know, impact would have to go to Get Up Kids. There's just no doubt because mm-hmm. something to write home about change of the game. You know, it didn't sell as much as as Save the Day. It didn't sell as much as Dashboard, but it changed the game. It legitimized us. It put us on the map. And know? they're still playing it, those it, fucking songs, and kids still want to hear them. <laughs> yep, they still want to hear them. And there isn't a there isn't a weak. There isn't a weak point on that record. There isn't a, a missed note, you know, or or anything. It's just, it's a perfect album. It really is. Um, you know, there's that. I can't say enough about Face to Face. I mean, for them to let us put out their live record, it was literally John and I in a room. I mean, I was their manager, but beyond that, I had no reason <laughs> to even ask us, ask them to put out their live record. Somehow wow. I was able to able to convince A&M to let us do it, and we sold 75,000 copies, which was unheard of for, not only for us, but for a live punk rocker. Um, and funny story, I, I offered that record as a manager. I offered it to Fat Mike. Ah. And, uh, and I called him. I said, hey, we want to put out a face-to-face live record. I'll never forget it because Mike had a great line. It's like, and Mike's like, we don't really believe in live records. It's like for metal bands. Well, fast forward to two no effects live records later and a whole series of live and a die. <laughs> apparently he believes apparently he believes in them now. Something but, happens. Uh, yeah. But you know, that's 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 neither here nor there. I face to face and the get of kids were really kind of ground zero for yeah starting it because it made everybody look at us differently. I mean, Saves Today wouldn't have considered us, you know, Dashboard wouldn't have considered us. You know. Um and also I'd say the Alpine Trio was a huge it didn't seem like it to any to the outside world at the time, because you know, like we said, the trio. When you asked me about signing bands, it looked like we're obviously big. I mean, trio never sold more than ten thousand records when we signed them. I think we sold close to that in the first week. I just that band was the closest thing to Jawbreaker that I had ever found. Oh, definitely. And you know, and they were my Jawbreaker was my favorite band, and I was like, why is this band not huge? 
And so to sign the Alpine Trio was, uh, you know, th- I got to put that Premier Infirmary is definitely on my my must-have list. If you were going to like Time Capsule Vagrant, it would probably be the Get Up Kids, um, first Get Up Kids record, the first Trio record, and the first Ashworth record. Yeah. And the first Save the Day record. Those four were kind of the ground zero for it all. Definitely. Um, I have a funny uh, face-to-face story that I just remembered that I don't know if you get a kick out of. Um, I forget what time. I think it was 98 or 99. I forget when it was. And I saw him at the Cat's Cradle, and there's, like, no real security there. And this kid mm-hmm. kept jumping up and jumping off the stage and knocking Keith's um, guitar oh, out of tune. Okay. And yeah. it happened twice. And he's like, all right, so – because you know he can look like kind of mean for a second. You know he's got this. <laughs> yeah, like, sure. He looks like he's I'm a gonna big teddy bear, but he's intimidating as hell looking. Yeah. Yeah. So he kind of was like, "All right, if you hit my fucking guitar again, we're gonna stall the show, <laughs> and I'm gonna beat the shit out of you." And <laughs> and of course, a couple songs go by. You know, something off fucking the first record, and then you know it happens again. What happens? A fucking bouncer takes him keith takes off his guitar and at the cradle it was one of those um this is in north carolina there's a um it oh was, yeah it was Carver, a uh, north carolina yeah well familiar with it it was a uh it was like a strip mall so you could see the lights from outside and it was a window and so yeah. all the band keeps playing and all you see is the silhouette of like haymakers in the back behind the stage <laughs> of someone getting the shit kicked out of them and <laughs> was it the bouncer was it trevor I don't remember actually, but I remember he took off his guitar and the band kept like just jamming on that. Like what? I mean, they, they could do that and it would be entertaining. So everyone was yeah. like, fuck yeah. So all you see is a silhouette of just haymakers. And then minute That's goes by, cartoon. he comes back and like almost within like, you know, it was like, and then it was back into the verse. Yeah. <laughs> and everyone was like, that is the greatest the thing ever. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. They, uh, the face to face stories are a legion. I mean, you've been you've been with them as long as I have. I could I could we could spend four hours yeah. talking about it. But always the best stories came out of face to face shows. Yeah. So I, that one just popped in my head. I was like, I have to tell Rit. Or I have to tell you. That's a good one. <laughs> um, it's funny because they were like the face to face was the catalyst also for the package tours for us. Because if you remember, maybe the the most incredible package tour we ever put together wasn't even the American tour. It was Face to face, new fan glory, outline trio, and saves the day. Do you remember that tour? Yes, I do. That, that that tour was like people were just like, "What in God? How did that happen? What year was but that was again?" All, oh, that had to been well. Let's see, two thousand. I, I want to say two thousand and it was two thousand. It was two thousand. Okay, because then I definitely saw that in New York. Um, yeah. Yeah. That was a hell of a tour. It was at the end of 2000, and all those bands. When we booked them, they weren't starting to happen. But we, you know, we booked it six months in advance, and all three of those bands started to take off. You know, and Face to Face had just come off Ignorance of Bliss and was releasing Reactionary, so they were back to a punk rock record. And that tour just exploded. I mean, it was like it was the dream tour. Wow. So yeah, that was a that was a precursor to wait a minute, this whole thing might work. Yeah, putting the putting the bands together and and uh, and putting out a you know a vagrant package. Mm-hmm. Not that not the new friend Glory was on vagrant, but you know they were extended family. Yeah, definitely. 
Um, last one, last question. The favorite album someone should look at again. So it's, you know, maybe they left it on their Spotify playlist. They're not picking it up. Which one is like the unknown or the unheralded record of the, of the, uh, the, the label? Of the Venom catalog? Yeah. Oh, boy. God, I'm going to be leaving so many out. Um, <laughs> that's what sucks. I, hold on one sec. Yo! Um, let's see. What is the, what is the, the missed gem? I would go, uh, oh boy. It's hard. I know. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. I like hard questions. <laughs> you know, you know, I want to say revisit the, the, the great ones, but I'm just going to assume they still listen to those. Um, you know, and, and you can't find boxer on Spotify. Otherwise I'd use them. Why not? I would, um, I don't know. I, do not know why that has not gotten up because that's a great, great record. That and that, that it's so funny because I talk about it all the time and everyone just draws blank stares like I have no idea what you're talking about. But that record set the tone for what our label would become sound wise because we were we got to get that back up. Yeah, I know. I, I got to talk to John about that. Get getting that catalog back up. At first, I got to tell him about getting the, the email bands back on our website. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I'm telling you, try and search it when you're when you're done. <laughs> oh, I know. It used to be alumni, and then it just disappeared. And then it like, disappeared. All of a sudden, we've always been this this label that puts out English bands. I'm like, whoa, 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 what happened the first 15 years? <laughs> I think we'll remedy that. Um, so, boxer, boxer is one that people need to find if because they can't. They're gonna have to go to the record oh, store. That that record is so good. I don't know if if you can even. I mean, you can find a couple songs on on YouTube, but. But that record was kind of the bridge between our punk rock days, you know, our pop punk days, to what we became. Because they did. It sounded like Lifetime. I read, it, that's another band that I signed. I was reading um, Maximum Rock and Roll, and it just had a description of Boxer. It was, it was like a classified ad. It said it, they described themselves as a mix between Game Face, Lifetime, and Face to Face. I was like, I'm in. Okay, that's worth checking out. So I emailed the kid, and he sent it to me, and the first three songs were horrific. And we're like, oh, well, whatever. And then this fourth song called Georgia came on, and I was like, oh, my God. So I called him. I'm like, do you have more songs like that? And he's like, oh, yeah, the, the songs we sold you are all, the century were all old. I'm like, way to go, kid, marketing 101. Yeah, nice and the job. old crappy stuff. So he sent us a bunch more, and we flew them out like two weeks later, and they made a record for us. It was just phenomenal. Wow. And, uh, yeah, it was a great record, and then they broke up. But I would say, I would say, Boxer or Hot Rod Circuit. That's uh, that. That was going to be mine. I, I, like, yeah, the, their catalog, their hooks, their the songs. If anyone is listening that hasn't d- d- dived in, or dove dive. It's too late. Um, into their either. catalog. You got it. Either. Thank you. Um, it, it's a you know, it's a it's a worthy night. <laughs> oh God, yeah. yeah. I mean it. I would put that up against any of the ones that, you know, put us on the map. It, that that one still, that one was my biggest regret the whole time. I mean, we would start off marketing meetings with, what can we do for this Hot Rod record? Because, I mean, Radiation Suit, like there were so many great songs on that record. Um, you know, I, I think, unfortunately for, for Hot Rod, they ended up as kind of always the bridesmaid, never the bride. Yep. Because they were, they were always opening for the Get Up Kids. They were opening for Saves of the Day. They were always opening act they never stood out 
like kind of went out of limb and said, this is us. You know, they were kind of just, I don't know. They never made that next level leap live. Yeah, um, and I, I think that's probably what held them back. But that record, there's no denying it. Every song on it is is song. So I, I would go with I would go with Hot Rod. And Willie's the best. I got a great story about Willie. We were playing the. Um, uh, Dashboard playing Neil Young's uh, benefit that he does every year for the Bridge School up in San Francisco, mm-hmm. and it was the 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 lineup was uh, it was Neil, it was Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, it was um, the Indigo Girls, Incubus, Willie Nelson, and Dashboard, and somebody else, maybe the County Crows, but we. Um, it was, it's an amazing weekend. I mean, he just does such incredible things to the school for severely handicapped kids. And, um, Neil has everybody who's playing the show, all the artists over to his, his house for dinner the night before the show. And it's not like some dinner where Neil just comes down and waves. It's like you're sitting at the table going, excuse me, um, uh, Neil, could you pass the, uh, mashed potatoes? It's like a real dinner. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, and Caraba and I were lucky enough to go. And we were the freshmen at the senior party. We were standing over by the ping pong table, you know, like in 16 candles, just like, yeah, like hide. there's no fucking way I can go over there. <laughs> no, no, there was no chance. But, but Chris said to me, and he had his back turned to, to where everyone was. And he said to me, he goes, he's like, he goes, well, what if Neil talks to me? What am I going to say? And I go, well, because I'm looking over his shoulder. I go, well, you got about three seconds. To think of it. Cause he's heading right for you. <laughs> and he turns around and Neil's right there. And he's like, hey, I'm Neil. And he sticks out his hand, and we were both just like, duh, duh. <laughs> yeah, What are you supposed to say to fucking Neil Young? <laughs> Nothing. Just like, thank you. <laughs> Tell me stories. Was, I don't know anything. Yeah, it was just incredible. It was incredible. But um, but the Willie story of that was the, the day of the show, um, Mike Marsh, our drummer, wanted to meet Willie. And so, you know, Chris and, that, Chris and him asked if, if they could meet him at some point, and the tour manager is just this old road dog. He's like, come on up now. So we go up on the bus and we walk up there. It's just Willie and Neil. And um, Willie's teaching Neil. They're going to do a duet that night. And he's teaching him Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain. And wow. we were sitting there, like on the bus, the three of us, just like, why are we here? Why are we here? Why are we here? <laughs> and they're like, come on in, fellas, sit down. We're just we're going over a song. And it was just, it, it's just one of those moments you look back on and you go, I can't even believe that was my life. Yeah. Wow. So that that was really cool. That was really cool. So yeah, I know what you mean about just being able to like go, am I really involved in this somehow? As I'm talking, my slip to the floor, and they crawl through your legs, slide on But I'm, I'm so glad, you know, because it, it was a great time. The press adopted it and made it something that it wasn't, but it was an awesome, awesome time. There was just a purity to it, and it uh, it, it kind of stung a little bit to see it get corrupted, and and then also to get lumped into the corruption. Like you know, I didn't enjoy being on the cover of Punk Planet saying how we ruined everything. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it was what it was. It was uh, you know, I don't know. It it was a great four year run where not for us, but for 
us collectively, you know, us who was in the, whether it was us or, or Saul Goodman or anybody, you know, it was like, it was just a great time for, for music and for, for shows and for, for like kids playing to their peers. You know what I mean? Like if you looked out, those kids with the ghetto kids were playing to were those were their classmates. There wasn't any rock stardom to it, you know? Mm-hmm. It was like you could be your audience and it showed your audience that they could be you. Pick up a guitar. And Frank Turner's got a great, some great lines about that. You know, it's just like his, his whole thing about you can do this too. You just, you know, you just need your three chords and, and a little bit of a, a little bit of bravery to get up on stage, the beauty of punk rock. And I think Frank Turner is, is carries on that spirit of what kind of what we were doing. Oh, um, definitely. I think he's, he's, he's one of my favorites. Definitely glad we could reconnect um, after so many years. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm super psyched that you're happy or, you know, you've got great stuff going on and then, you know, that aesthetic still kind of continues. So that's definitely inspiring. Yeah, well, likewise, man. I'm, I'm stoked you're doing it and I'm stoked you're keeping alive and, and I'm stoked to see it come around. And, and it's good. And I'm, I'm more than happy to do this and I appreciate you giving me the time. Can you sleep as the sound hits your ears One at a time An unspoken balance here Bridge for so many years That I should stare at the receiver Hello, Washed Up Emo fans. Thank you for listening to this podcast over the last nine plus years. Or if it's your first time, welcome. It has flown by and I appreciate each and every one of you for listening. And for this current episode you're about to hear, I do have a favor of you. I have some books out right now called Anthology of Emo. And Volume 2 was released last fall. I really think you'll dig it if you haven't heard of them. It features guests from the podcast, including Jim Atkins from Jimmy World, Chris Conley from Saves the Day, Travis Shettle from Piebald, and John Bunch from Sensefield. I've also printed volume one so you can order both check out the diy publishing at anthologyofemo.com